Welcome to Your Vote, Your Voice, a podcast by the League of Women Voters of the St. Petersburg area. I'm Dr. Lindsay Grove, a public health practitioner and president of the LWVSPA. And I'm Natasha Samrini, co-host and storyteller, and honestly, just like a big fan of the LWVSPA. We are starting this new year off talking about our Engaged St. Pete report, and we're talking about some of the issues that came out of this report that we feel like are really salient. But to give you a little bit of background on the Engaged St. Pete report, It started in 2018, the Foundation for a Healthy St. Pete funded uh, a civic health study, and we led that study. And before this, the city actually measured engagement, civic engagement and community cohesion by using the STAR framework, which is a comprehensive rating system that evaluates community-wide sustainability, encompassing economic, environmental, and social performance measures. A lot of cities across the United States use the STAR framework. However, City of St. Pete didn't submit any data to determine measures of civic engagement, civil and human rights, or equitable services and access because they didn't have enough data to meet the threshold. The Engaged St. Pete study was developed to not only better understand civic health differences and similarities by zip code, demographics, and income, but to also help the city fill in the information gaps of the STAR report. We had 1,500 people respond to this survey. I was a part of this study uh, along with Amy Keith, Dr. Susie Patterson, and Dr. Julie Kessel. And we set out to understand how citizens currently feel about civic engagement in our city. Respondents were asked if they were satisfied with the direction the city was headed in. Most residents, 55%, reported being satisfied with the way things were going in the city. When analyzing narrative comments, the number one concern for residents was the pace and scale of development with affordable housing being the second biggest concern. We know that healthier cities are better at solving problems. People that vote are typically healthier. So there's a definite intersection between civic engagement and and public health. The third concern was inequality, gentrification, and the city catering to the wealthy. So all of these things are intertwined with each other, and they're fueled by economic inequity and systemic racism. Affordable housing is really just a symptom of these forces, you know, interacting together. What is civic health? I know what mental health is. I know what physical health is. What's civic health? Sure. So I would say that civic health is the, like, a community's capacity to be civically engaged. So there is civic engagement, right? Um, you know, how people interface with their government, with their community, with, you know, the, the public sector. Health is, a, is, is in a way is measurement, right? We want to know what the health of something is. Is it poor? Is it, you know, uh, neutral or is it good? And so it's really just a a way of measuring how adaptive, I guess, our our civic engagement body is to different stressors and you know how well we're doing on that. I totally am just like imagining a Sesame Street for adults in the back of my head, like Maria and them coming out and like, yes! you know civic health, Elmo? No, Maria. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is volunteerism. <laughs> this is donations. <laughs> and Oscar the Grouch never feels fully engaged. Right, he's like, I don't vote because my voice doesn't matter. <laughs> So the topic of today is affordable housing, which I'm sure if you listen to anything St. Pete related or even anything Florida related, affordable housing comes up a lot because it's obviously not 
a unique issue to St. Pete. We decided to bring in a local community leader who is, I think, a great content area expert to sort of talk about the intersection of these things. Thank you, Tasha. And thank you for that, that good intro, um, Dr. Grove. And so, and I often refer to myself as a community stakeholder versus leader. I think that that's more encompassing because everyone can be a stakeholder. We're so excited to have you here, Beatrice, and I'm so excited to get this going again with a wonderful co-host. So Beatrice, we are so happy to have you here to talk about the report. I'm the newest one to all of this. Tell me a little bit about Deuce's Live involvement in this study or the impetus behind supporting something like this. The Deuces Live is a business district, for lack of a better word. And we represent 22nd Street South on the historic commercial corridor. So prior to segregation, someone could live and die on 22nd Street. Mercy Hospital was on 22nd Street South and 15th Avenue. And St. Jared's Funeral Home was on 9th Avenue South and 22nd Avenue. There were over 100 businesses here. The legacy of that importance to the African-American community in St. Petersburg at large is why we thought it was important to engage with this study. Dr. Grove reached out and we responded and we engaged some of our members um, and board members to assist with the answering of the question. How long have you been in, in St. Pete, Beatrice? I've been in the St. Pete, Tampa Bay area for probably 25 years. I lived in Pinellas County for 22 if you were to give me a sense from your experience of St. Pete area 20 years ago versus now, we use the term civic health. What would that look like to you? Is there an increase, a decrease? What are the, what are the um, extreme changes you can discern? How does someone mark that? It's interesting when I was doing the survey uh, with, with Dr. Grove, I said, well, how do you consider civic health? Because in some communities, people, the community is very active in the church. But that doesn't count when you're, when you're considering civic health. I'll give you an example. When the pandemic started, it was March 13th, my daughter's birthday, that's why I remember. They canceled the Grand Prix. That Monday, there was a church on the corridor who was giving out lunch. That Monday. From Friday to Monday. So... This community responded immediately. Probably two weeks later, the larger organizations that have more scale um, were really engaged. But I remind people that the church on the corner was handing out lunches the weekend after the pandemic started. So I can't think of a better example of how this community is engaged. I found that so interesting that everyone can feel like they're doing something like they can volunteer, they can go to church or like they can clean up or they can vote or they can attend some type of like public policy meeting. But we don't all understand it the same way in terms of its contributions. How are we informed on that part? So that's a great question. And to Beatrice's point, understanding all of the different ways that people are civically engaged outside of what we would consider Mm -hmm. traditional forms of civic engagement was something that we absolutely learned um, as an organization and just as, as, a, as a part of the Engage St. Pete report. 
you know, if we were to do this again, which we hope we can do so we can start looking at trends over time, we would absolutely add more options for folks to, you know, really capture all of the different types of civic engagement that different communities engage in. It sounds like partly what you said in terms of even just like the survey process does have to do with an issue of framing on a small scale or like even when you say things like traditional, it does force us to like look even deeper. And, you know, maybe this is the norm to certain groups of people, but it doesn't mean it's the right way. The black elected officials, people see them at church. Okay, so I got to call you at your office to talk to you, mom, and talk to you in the grocery store. So, I mean, but those things aren't tracked. It's just one perspective. It may be similar to others in the community, but it's, it's certainly not the, the only voice. We did ask about volunteerism, but you're right. Like we should have expanded that even more because, you know, we can only give so many examples of it. But, and a lot of times people don't realize that they're volunteering or doing civic engagement because, you know, they, they think that it's a more narrow definition. And, and we've probably also reinfo- we've reinforced that by only providing certain examples. But another thing that was really interesting was um, was also donations. One of the things that we found when we were asking folks about donations is, you know, understanding the amounts of donations that people give and to who they give them to. And I think that there's this false perception that like that communities of color don't donate. But in fact, like communities of color donate incredible amounts of money and to lots of different community-based organizations, not necessarily to campaigns. But to Beatrice's point, you know, when we looked at civic engagement differences across demographics, that's exactly what we found. A lot of our communities of color focus on community-based activities like responding to the pandemic, you know, providing meals for folks, uh, doing things with their churches, youth development was something big that came out of, um, you know, priorities that communities of color put on, you know, how they volunteer their time. Uh, whereas you see like more affluent and white communities calling their representatives, going to city council meetings, like all of the things that we would consider traditional types of civic engagement, which then leads to, you know, this power dynamic between how policy is made. But what I did find interesting was that across demographics, meaning race, gender, um, income, education, people are really concerned about affordable housing and in the overdevelopment of St. Pete. When we talk about affordable housing, what we need to talk about is people who live and work here can no longer afford to live here. And that's really the basis of it. Ten years ago, if you had a job and you made $30,000 a year, you could probably still buy a house in St. Petersburg. Now, you sort of can't. We can be limiting or expansive with our words behind it, even when we talk about affordable houses. I think that's a misnomer because I go back to my, um, my example in Cleveland. Okay, so you bought your house when it was $60,000. Now, you've done nothing, and your house is worth $200,000. So you're saying, I don't want affordable housing. like, wait a minute. How much was your house when you bought? So we don't have those conversations. When we talk about, you know, I don't want those people. What people? They're the same people. So we, but we need to have those kind of conversations 
so we can take the stigma away from affordable housing because all it means is people who work every day should be able to buy a home. We have built an economy where we have encouraged people who have incredibly high means to move here. And so what we have done is not created an ecosystem that allows everybody to have equity where we live. That's a different conversation that the people of money do not want to have. The people with money and power don't want to have that conversation. Beatrice, what would you say instead of affordable housing? Preferred like terminology to speak about it. And I don't like really workforce housing either. I think we should just say housing. We need to have more housing. Hmm. So, Lindsay, break it down for me. What is housing policy? Housing policy consists of, you know, laws and ordinances that essentially regulate the types of housing, how housing is constructed, and they really have a lot to do with urban planning. So how do we plan the city and how do we create housing for different purposes, whether that's rental, residential, uh, multifamily, affordable housing, subsidized housing. So it's really just like laws and regulations that, that regulate again, types of housing, how housing is built, how housing is funded, and how housing is planned in the city. The community of St. Pete, Florida is currently experiencing an affordable housing crisis. In 2016, 35% of St. Pete residents were experiencing a significant housing burden, meaning that they spent more than 30% of their monthly income on housing costs, which if you think about that, 30% of your, your monthly paycheck going towards rent or your mortgage. I mean, that's significant. And imagine spending more of that. So that's what we would call a housing burden. Um, on average, residents spend 24% of their income on rent. And this was in 2017. According to the University of Florida Schimberg Center on Housing Studies, they estimate that we will need to build 2,500 new affordable units to house low-income residents in St. Petersburg. Despite COVID-19, more and more people are moving to the Sunshine State and into our city. So that number is just gonna continue to increase. This means more business and more tourism dollars fueling commercial and residential development while threatening the historic character and worsening racial and economic inequities. If we don't do things about that now when it comes to policy and that sort of thing. How has COVID and the pandemic and the things that intertwine with that affected St. Pete, housing, and like, like these things don't happen in a vacuum, right? right? The moratorium on evictions and what that means for people in the St. Pete community. For the landlords, it's not good because, especially for this, the landlords with this family business, the federal government and the state government and the county government responded because they made rent assistance available. And so that sort of was like the win, you know. So people who, if you live somewhere and you couldn't pay, somebody would pay your rent. So that, I think, was the balance of, you know, the reason you're not getting evicted is because you're still getting your money. COVID impacted the community because a lot of people have, now they're essential jobs. Okay, so we could have told you they were essential, like, before COVID. And that you should pay people who drive the buses, 
worked in the in the grocery stores, who worked in the drugstores. But if you think about it, 30 years ago, people who worked every day could live. I mean, you might not have the biggest house, but you could afford a car and a, in, in a safe and sanitary place to live. So around the turn of the century, there really wasn't a lot of ordinances or zoning, right? So zoning is another example of housing policy. Zoning dictates, you know, how many houses can be in a neighborhood, um, what kinds of housing can be in a neighborhood, what, you know, dictates whether or not businesses can be in a certain area. And so um, in a lot of the older neighborhoods of St. Petersburg, you see a lot of mixed housing. Um, for instance, in Old Northeast, you'll see um, multiplexes, but then you'll see bungalows. Um, you do see some businesses that are, you know, interspersed in neighborhoods. Black Crow's a great, you know, a great example of that, right? Black Crow's right in the middle of um, Old Northeast. So as time went on and St. Pete started to diversify and, you know, we had businesses coming in and out, even though St. Pete was extremely segregated, um, you know, we still had, you know, lots of different types of people moving to the city and people who were here and already established. Um, and so we saw racist housing policy happen. And one of the ways uh, it came to fruition was banning multiplexes in neighborhoods. So you'll see in more suburban areas of St. Pete. So um, younger, I, would, I wouldn't say like, you know, neighborhoods in like the 40s and 50s and on, you rarely see a multiplex because they were trying to prevent rentals from um, being built into these areas because typically people of color didn't have the wealth to purchase homes and they ended up living in rentals at the time. So even though on its face, this may not necessarily seem, you know, um, uh, race-based, it absolutely was. It was a way to continue to keep the city of St. Petersburg segregated. So, and that impacts us now. When we think about affordable housing, we're actually now looking at ways to make it so that there are different types of housing throughout the city. We're, we're you know, um, relaxing ordinances that allow accessory dwellings so that you can live in a garage apartment um, if you want to, we're trying to increase density in, in neighborhoods because we know that there's not a lot of land, so we have to build up and we have to build closer together. So, you know, we're actually going back to some of the things that, you know, A, people love about St. Pete that makes us like quirky, but, you know, some of the things that happened when there was a lot of development in the city itself around the turn of the century before we had more white supremacist informed um, housing policy. There are people possibly listening to the podcast that are in a tight bind financially. Hell, there's like a lot of us, right? Especially now, um, businesses, small businesses. Some of your background is in, is in financial resourcing for people all across the board. If someone's in a tight bind, they can't even pay their rent. What kind of organization can you reach out to? What's the first thing you would do? So I would tell them to start with the foundation. The Foundation for Health and Safety and Pinellas Community Foundation. And, and I'm, I'm citing those two specifically because there's also this like balance between efficiency and productivity and not. They're both incredibly efficient, proficient organizations with respect to responding to people in need. So they may not be able to help you, but they probably have funded somebody who can. That's what I would tell people to do. 
is to call one of those two foundations. If you have a banking relationship and you have a business, call your bank because PPP loans have been reauthorized. Yeah, it can be scary. It's like taking the first step and you really don't know. And and there's a great fear of rejection just as a human in anything you do. Right. No, there is. I mean, because we applied for the PPP loan the first time and they were like, we ran out of money. Like, oh my God. <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you a personal example. In between jobs, I have a um, a toll pass. New contract stops starts next month. But I didn't have enough money to pay for my toll pass for a year. But the toll was a dollar a month a day. So I spent thirty dollars in one month because I didn't have fifty dollars at the beginning of the month to pay for the toll pass. When we talk about civic engagement. Part of it has to be getting people to understand about how they view and act on poverty doesn't help people not be poor. That's a really great way to put it. Yeah. I really appreciate you doing this, Beatrice. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being on the podcast, how your amazing contributions to the Engage St. Pete Report. I'm so thankful for you as a partner and all of the things that I've learned since I met you. And I am looking forward to you finally getting online so we can play chess. Yes, um, okay, so I don't know if you can see, it says chess with Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not crossed out. Um, that means it has not been done yet. <laughs> that is also true. <laughs> Don't forget to follow us on social media. The League of Women Voters of the St. Petersburg area is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other podcast directories and podcatchers. Like us, review us, and subscribe. It helps others find us and makes our podcast better. You can reach us at office at lwvspa.org or on our website, www.lwvspa.org. Remember, your vote is your voice.